in this study. Uh, we just had a very crucial two-hour meeting on some of the initial data from our study, and we'll be, I'm sure, presenting that at some point, and John will be involved with it. So um, those studies involve people who are wasted and malnourished. We're going to hear about the other side of the coin uh, today from John, and I'll state that uh, John has no conflict of interest and there's no commercial support for this presentation. So, John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you to Ford and um, Richard for having me back here. I think I was last here about two years ago. We talked about some of the work we had done in Zambia. So I got just a little bit about myself. I got started studying HIV and nutrition in Zambia um, for a year between 2008 and 2009 as a Fogarty Fellow and uh, really looked at metabolic consequences of antiretroviral therapy initiation in underweight people. So when I returned to Tennessee, um, it wasn't really feasible. I got married. It wasn't really feasible to travel as much. We had a baby on the way. So I started looking around, how can you translate nutrition and HIV to Tennessee? And uh, if you've ever been to Tennessee, it's a very, um, a lot of fried chicken, a lot of moon pies, a lot of RC colas. So I switched over to uh, studying obesity and HIV, and I've actually been amazed, really, how much overlap there can be, um, sort of in, in some of the metabolic abnormalities you see in um, overly thin patients and the metabolic abnormalities you see in obese patients. I've also found, though, that this is an interesting topic. One, because uh, HIV, and I'll hopefully show you in the next hour, in many ways is like obesity and what it does to the body. Even though patients look to be thin, they really have a lot of the metabolic problems you wouldn't imagine. The overlap of HIV and obesity exacerbates some problems and actually makes many of them better. Um, but I think the thing that's most interesting that we're trying to get into more now is really just how having patients almost like a captive audience in HIV, people who come back to the clinic you know, every three months and get seen, have access to the hospital, have access to excellent clinicians, how you can really begin to treat a lot of these lifestyle diseases. Just for a second. Sure how you can begin to treat a lot of these lifestyle diseases. And um, I think one of the most interesting things I'll touch on, I hope to make this a little bit interactive, is talk about what we see in our cohort in terms of what providers are doing and aren't doing, and maybe get some feedback uh, if you see the same thing here. So, I'll go over here now. So I, uh, either way. Okay. So I was asked to come up with some learning objectives. And so uh, this is what I sent in, and this is what I think, um, hopefully by the end of the talk, I'll be able to, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get across. So first off, I want to describe the changes in obesity prevalence in the HIV population over the last decade, and what are the groups that are most affected. I want to identify for you the major non-infectious comorbidities um, in HIV patients that are exacerbated by obesity. Um, also, maybe talk, touch a little bit on what are some of the um, non-infectious comorbidities in HIV that might get better if you gain a bit of weight. Summarize the combined effects of HIV and obesity on adipose tissue, so um, essentially what are we doing to one of the largest organs in the body with these two conditions? And then how does that affect clinical disease? And lastly, summarize uh, the state of the science on the key differences um, really in treating metabolic and cardiovascular disease in HIV versus the general population. Um, I think, unfortunately, there'll be a lot more that's not known in that field than is known. So the overview, I've divided it pretty much into four sections. So we'll start with epidemiology. So HIV wasting, uh, which was defined by the CDC, is greater than a 10% weight loss, uh, involuntary, accompanied by chronic diarrhea, fever, or other signs of infection. Um, in the pre-ART era, at any given time, if you looked at the H uh, known HIV cases, affected about 30% of 
of HIV patients. And what it usually uh, represented is it was an acceleration of disease. So it was almost a pre-AIDS uh, state. Generally, it was um, driven by a highly pro-inflammatory milieu, which caused anorexia, uh, inability to deposit protein in muscle, and also um, a much higher basal metabolic rate. Um, so basically, patients would waste away because not only were they not hungry, but even if they did eat, the calories they took in were not being incorporated by the body, um, and their requirements for calories are so much higher. Now, in the post-ART era, we're really not seeing as much uh, wasting. Um, so at Vanderbilt, every now and then, uh, so we do two weeks on the inpatient ID service, and I'd say maybe every two-week block, one to two people with advanced AIDS will come in. And who are these people? So I'm not sure um, up here in New Hampshire, but what we usually see, and this is from a recent HMO analysis, uh, our injection drug use, we've got a lot of that in Nashville, uh, a lot of homelessness in Nashville, a lot of food insecurity, a lot of low-income level, uh, low-income people. So it's basically the people who have a hard time either because of um, social barriers, such as drug use, or perhaps economic barriers, or even uh, education barriers, people have a difficult time accessing medical care, be it at the clinic or be it HIV testing. However, among the remainder of people, actually, uh, what we're seeing now is um, problems with uh, excessive weight gain. So this is data that we just finished uh, and presented, at Spain, presented in Spain uh, about two weeks ago. And what it is, is we looked at, um, are you guys familiar with NA Accord? which is the national um, HIV sort of uh, cohort collaboration. So NA Accord is a member of IDEA, which is the NIH's worldwide HIV surveillance system. And NA Accord covers uh, United States and Canada. And it's about 50 sites across the United States and Canada. And uh, all of those sites together represent over 100,000 patients either on ART or um, in the pre-ART phase. And all of these sites receive some money from NA Accord, and they have a data harmonization protocol, and we all upload data. Vanderbilt's one of the founding sites of NA Accord. So we took uh, 13 cohorts, which um, is really actually not um, entirely true, as uh, two of those 13 cohorts were actually multi-site cohorts, so probably closer to about 30 cohorts, of uh, North American AIDS Court Collaboration and Research and Design. And those were the cohorts that, rep that report longitudinal BMI. And then from that, we set a window where we took um, body mass index and weight either 180 days prior to or 30 days after starting ART. And what we found was that between 1998 and 2010, the proportion of patients who were obese when they started ART, uh, defined as a body mass index greater than 30, increased from 9% to 18%. Now, that's, um, there's a lot of heterogeneity in those cohorts. So actually, at Vanderbilt, 37% of our patients are obese right now, which I think is, um, is that any idea of what it is at, at um, Dartmouth? Is it higher or lower? Well, well, lower, you think? Okay. Well, we have 37%, but it, um, it looks like across the country, it's probably closer to 18% in 2010, and that's continuing to go up. We're estimating probably 20% of patients um, in the United States and Canada were obese at the time of starting ART. Now, you may ask whether or not that's just due to differences in when we start, so the fact that we're starting earlier. Uh, patients have less opportunity to get advanced disease. So these models um, adjust for age and baseline CD4 count. What we did was we created a um, single model that included interactions for sex and race, and so we were able to extract um, BMI, or excuse me, we were able to extract sex and race stratified uh, measures of BMI according to year for all of these groups. And so what we basically found 
on this side, on the uh, left side, is, is that uh, female patients are the upper lines on both the red. And so you see that there's an increase um, in average BMI ART initiation, independent of CD4 and independent of age, among women and among men of both races. And over here, this is uh, NHANES data, so it's national um, health surveillance data. And what we did was we took, uh, in every two, NHANES is reported in two-year intervals, so we took every two-year interval of our NA Accord population, and we then standardized according to age and pulled out uh, the relevant data uh, for NHANES, or we weighted according to the distribution of age in NA Accord. And what we're seeing actually is that women, um, among white women, they've now approximated and are actually slightly higher in terms of the um, uh, average BMI of women in the United States, and among uh, non-whites, which in our cohort is overwhelmingly African-American, are now essentially their uh, BMI at ART initiation is essentially the same as the uh, general population. So what we're finding is that among women, um, rates of obesity at ART initiation have reached parity with the general population, and men are, are approaching that point. I should point out, too, that we eliminated pregnant women, and we had various algorithms to try and uh, pull them out of the data set. So. We're pretty confident that um, this is not due to pregnancy. So additionally, we also looked at weight gain among adults starting ART. Um, and this is a separate question. So you know, we see a lot of patients who come in um, and get hooked up with the health system at Vanderbilt because of HIV. All of a sudden, they have access to a lot more social services. They have nutrition counseling. Uh, they can get um, Brian White funding. They can, you know, we have uh, social workers hook them up with food stamps and things like that. So we find a lot of, uh, particularly our poorer patients, who come in with some degree possibly of waste or at least low, low body weight, gain weight very rapidly after they start. And so what we found was that in our normal uh, weight patients, they're gaining one point. Uh, three kilograms per year over the first three years. So it comes out to around seven pounds, seven to eight pounds. I think the interesting thing, though, is, is that actually 80% of that weight gain is occurring in the first uh, 12 months of treatment. So our normal weight patients, um, our normal BMI patients, seem to be gaining probably somewhere in the range of six to seven pounds in the first year. And there's some data, um, at least out of India and Africa, indicating that early weight gain on ART may be primarily fat. So the question is, are these patients packing on uh, fat mass after starting antiretroviral therapy, and is that going to have an effect on their metabolic health down the road? Lastly, um, the weight gain that we're seeing in our uh, cohort is um, overwhelmingly it's among, uh, it's greater in white men compared with white women, and it's greater in um, African-American women compared to African-American men. Does anybody have any questions about the national trends? I've often wondered about the influence of diet on that pattern, and mm -hmm. all see that increasingly, and I have to wonder if the diet you have prior to starting ART, if it's sort of calibrated to help you retain the weight that you're losing because yeah. you know, if that might lead to a more, you know, sort of adipogenic diet yeah. No, I never thought of that, actually, but that's interesting, yeah, whether or not people are compensating and yeah. then just carry on thinking that's how much they should be eating. Yes. Go ahead. Did you look at how much weight the average adult Over, over a three-year period? Uh, in NHANES, no. Um, actually, that's something we hadn't looked at. That's something we talked about doing. I think we will go back and do it. Um, those were at, that was for an abstract, so I think for the manuscript, yeah, that's something that we have to go back and look at. I, can't, I don't think, I mean, I, I'm assuming it's going to be less. We were seeing six to seven pounds per in that first year. Um, but, um, you know, we'll see how much the average person, especially in that age group, might be expected to gain. Because I think we all gain a little bit of weight, um, you know, each year. 
So uh, talking next about uh, comorbidities um, in HIV. So this is a study by James Willig's group at University of Alabama. And he basically took the 1917 cohort, which is the UAB HIV cohort. And he looked at patients who were obese and on ART. And he created these clusters of illness. Um, and the clusters of illness, I think, are a little bit arbitrary. But what I want to show you is I want you to look at cluster one and cluster two. Now, in cluster one, in the paper, diabetes is the most common um, uh, comorbidity that gets you into cluster one. And in cluster two, dyslipidemia is the most common cluster, uh, thing that gets you into cluster two. So I wanted to highlight, and I've circled it here, the percentages. And then um, what that is, is it's the overlap between the green circles and the blue circles. So it represents the, the overlap between cluster one and cluster two. So what they found was that among underweight and normal weight patients, 10% uh, or less had both diabetes and dyslipidemia simultaneously. What they found, though, in the obese was that essentially, or almost one-third of the patients had something from cluster one and something from cluster two. And the majority of it actually was the overlap of, of um, diabetes and dyslipidemia. So that's a theme I want to, um, to go on a bit more with. And you also see here, I think you can see that the uh, substance use seems to go down uh, in the 1917 cohort as you get heavier. And that's something that we see in our cohort. That's also something that's been shown um, in other national cohorts. So I think a lot of people have probably seen this slide before. Um, so we already know that HIV patients are, oh, sorry, go ahead. Hey, is there, is there, are, the, are the doctors telling these patients to quit substance use? And is, that, is there like an addiction transfer happening from substance use to eating more? Or? Yeah, that would be, be fascinating to look at. Because um, that happens in people with bariatric surgery, for example. Once they stop eating, they'll start drinking more. They'll start drinking more? Yeah, that would actually be fascinating to look at. We never thought of that. Um, but we, we're, we're trying to, to, to get a little bit more into provider behavior, and I'll talk about that in a minute, in our cohort, um, and trying to look how you know uh, providers might treat obese patients differently than others. Um, but that's something we definitely want to look at. So I think that um, I've, people have seen these slides before. Basically, the uh, risk of cardiovascular and um, metabolic disease is much higher in HIV. And I'm going to try and get into some of the reasons why that might be. But uh, as a baseline, um, it was shown uh, by Todd Brown many years ago in the MAX cohort that uh, patients who were started on antiretroviral therapy compared to BMI-matched and age-matched controls, and these are all men, had a fourfold greater risk of developing uh, diabetes on ART. And you can see the years of follow-up there. Um, basically, out by three years, the risk was fourfold. Now, keep in mind, some of these are stavudine-treated uh, patients, so stavudine is definitely very um, diabetogenic. But it's still, I think, um, an important number to look at. The, uh, similar findings have been shown more recently in the DAD and Swiss cohort study. Um, they're not quite as dramatic, but I think that in those uh, studies, the a minimum was at least a two-fold increase. Uh, Virginia Triant also looked at something similar in terms of myocardial infarction in HIV patients using the Harvard cohort. And she actually found that among all HIV patients, there was uh, these were uh, matched by age group, as you can see down there, but also by BMI, in addition to smoking and other risk factors. And what she found was that there was a 1.75 increased relative risk. What was most striking, though, was actually patients in the 18 to 34 group were already having heart attacks um, in, among those with HIV, uh, five times more likely than those without HIV. So we like to, um, one of the things that our group, which is uh, based around studying um, nutrition and HIV, we like to think of ART treatment in some ways as an obesity equivalent. So this was a study by Kathleen Samaras that was done in um, Australia in 2009, published in uh, one of the Nature journals. 
And this is just a baseline slide that I want to show you before we get to the actual results. But what she did was she took a group of ART-treated um, patients who were suppressed, who were lean, um, otherwise healthy men, and she took 10 of them without lipodystrophy and 10 with lipodystrophy. Now, they define lipodystrophy clinically, basically as, as uh, clinician uh, diagnosed evidence of peripheral fat wasting in addition to central fat gain. And she then also recruited a, a group of obese, um, uninfected controls. So these were obese, sedentary, insulin-resistant men who volunteered for the study. You can see the body mass index in the obese controls was a 30. Uh, it was 25 in um, the HIV patients. Total body fat was considerably lower. So these asterisks uh, represent um, tests for statistical significance versus controls. Far lower total body fat, far lower percent body fat. I want you to particularly look at this column here. But if you looked at visceral adipose tissue, uh, it was essentially equivalent between the obese um, sedentary uh, individuals and also those with uh, lipodystrophy, whereas without lipodystrophy was considerably lower. And then subcutaneous adipose tissue, which is sort of the overlying adipose tissue, was also very low in the uh, patients with lipodystrophy because SAT uh, atrophies the same way that peripheral adipose tissue does, um, whereas visceral goes up. So what they found, actually, when you look, and you'll notice that there was not much difference uh, in comparison to controls, was that treated HIV patients uh, had total cholesterol that was very similar to obese um, uninfected controls. It was actually higher, and this is all fasting, it was actually higher among those with lipodystrophy. HDL was low, uh, which is a major, emerging as a, as a major risk factor. Triglycerides were high. They were incredibly high in patients with uh, lipodystrophy. Fasting glucose was actually not so bad, but um, insulin was extremely high in all of the groups. And that's something that we see in a lot of HIV patients is very high levels of insulin prior to the development of diabetes. They are able to maintain fasting glucose levels, but if you actually measure their insulin in addition to their um, glucose, you'll see that their, um, their HOMA score is, is um, really abnormal. And then lastly, they also had very high levels of um, inflammatory markers. So C-reactive protein in those with lipodystrophy is actually higher than the obese. Um, and you also had very high levels of, of uh, IL-6 in all of the groups. So I think this gets to the question of um, how, are you, how are we defining BMI in, uh, how are we, excuse me, how are we defining obesity in HIV? And is BMI actually a very good measure? So everybody comes into our clinic, gets their height measured on the first visit, and then we measure their weight on the second visit, and then we follow their uh, BMI. But we're in the middle of rec recruiting a 100-person cohort of obese and non-obese HIV-infected individuals. We've actually found that it's very hard to determine who to put in our obese group because we have a number of people who um, have a BMI of 30, for example, and uh, you know when you actually bring them in though and do their waist circumference, they would be, um, you know, if they had normal fat distribution, closer to a BMI of 35 or 40. So when you see people who've got a lot of central fat distribution, their BMI might actually not be such a great um, measure. So first off, BMI, as we probably know, is, was basically based on persons of European descent, like a lot of other things in, in um, early medicine. So for example, people from the Indian subcontinent, we've noticed, and also from Southeast Asia, and some folks in Africa too, when they gain a lot of weight, they gain central weight faster than they gain peripheral weight. So they may actually be gaining more um, sort of metabolically harmful weight. Interestingly, too, if you look at aspects of HIV lipodystrophy, it also resembles um, Cushing syndrome. And so the weight gain can be very disproportionate. So um, did anyone read stuff by Steve Grinspoon? 
He's, yeah, so he's a, um, he does a lot of work with uh, growth hormone, but his other uh, real interest is kind of is in energy metabolism and HIV. And one thought in Cushing syndrome is why you deposit uh, the buffalo hump is, is sort of an energy uh, excess state. So it's an inability to store energy in normal depots, which would be kind of a nice balance between visceral and subcutaneous fat. And um, if you look at uh, adipose tissue biopsies and you just sort of look at um, kind of where patients with high levels of circulating lipids and glucose put their fat, it's actually very similar. So it seems that weight gain on ART is actually disproportionate, not because there's necessarily a pre uh, not because the uh, fat molecules are some somehow homing in on the visceral fat and homing in on the buffalo hump. It may actually be more, and I'll get to this in a minute, that the peripheral tissue is just so damaged, peripheral fat tissue, it just can't absorb um, that amount of energy excess, and that's why they're, they're, they're putting it here. So there do seem to be some, um, some um, similarities between those two. And in fact, we also know that visceral tissue is uh, considerably more uh, dangerous in predisposing to metabolic complications. Uh, the FRAM cohort, which was uh, Carl Grunfeld, um, did a lot of work with this many years ago. But in the FRAM cohort, they basically uh, looked at patients with fat redistribution and then also lean versus uh, heavy, heavier patients. And what they actually found was is that CRP in the peripheral circulation um, doubled for every 17% increase in visceral adipose tissue, but it required a similar 21% increase in subcutaneous uh, adipose tissue for it to go up. And so we've learned now that not only is visceral tissue uh, far more pro-inflammatory, and part of the reason might be is because it, drain, it, it produces high levels of IL-6 and it drains directly into the liver. So you, IL-6 is one of the major drivers of CRP production. So that pushes it up. Um, but additionally, it also seems to be um, even more uh, resistant to um, incorporation of um, circulating lipids as subcutaneous tissue might be. So while you have more of it, it does even um, sort of a, a less good job of taking in the circulating uh, energy molecules. And then lastly, um, so we're basically where I'm going with this is that we're finding, and I'll show you in a minute when we look at some of the comorbidities of visceral fat, which you can measure by single slice CT. You can also use some of the new generation DEXAs that have software to look at um, visceral adipose tissue. Um, or you can use MRI, but it's actually finding that probably measuring your patient's waist circumference is going to be more useful than just BMI alone in judging their metabolic risk. So um, I wanted to give a little bit of an overview of what the, where the field is in terms of clinical data on development of diabetes, dyslipidemia, and neurocognitive decline in obesity. So essentially, um, people have looked at these three fields in terms of uh, whether or not they change with body composition, but I think a lot of work still needs to be done. Um, in some ways, this may have been sort of more of the low-hanging fruit, but at least I can cover sort of some of what, what's been found. So what you see over here on the left is a, a study out of France, which was the co-pilot cohort, where they looked at how much the risk of incident diabetes after starting ART went up um, according to body mass index. And what they found was that in multivariate analysis, uh, an overweight patient had about a two-fold risk of developing diabetes after starting antiretroviral therapy, whereas our obese patients have about a three-fold risk of, of developing diabetes. Now, this is controlling for... Um, um, 
I think they had over a thousand patients in this study, um, and I think they had over 200 cases of diabetes, and they did some matching. So this is controlling for a number of different covariates. I think the more interesting thing, actually, though, was that the, it was a fourfold risk when you looked at waist circumference alone. So somebody with a waist circumference, um, I usually use for men a um, waist-to-hip ratio of 0.94, but in this case, they use 0.97. So if your waist-to-hip ratio goes over 0.97, and that's just the ratio of circumference of the waist to the circumference of the hips, you actually have a fourfold higher risk. Uh, similar things were seen in the DAD cohort, uh, where the relative risk was 2.2 and 5 um, in a multivariate model for overweight versus obese. And this is our integral cohort. So what we basically found was this is incident diabetes um, after starting antiretroviral therapy in the Vanderbilt cohort. And this is the probability of developing it. So you can see that once you get over a, a BMI of about 35, you're somewhere around a, a 0.65 probability um, compared to other uh, people who had a BMI of 25 of developing diabetes. So it goes up rapidly. Do we have any questions? So the other area that's really been looked at um, is uh, lipid. Uh, lipid levels in um, obesity. So this is a study, I picked this particular one uh, by Catherine Mulligan, was published in CID, because these are adolescent women. So these are not um, you know, overweight men with poor health habits. These are primarily African-American women who are between the ages, I think, of 18, it's either 14 and 24 or 18 and 24. Um, so you know, you would look at them if they came into your clinic and think, oh, this, is, you know, this person is so healthy, um, if only it wasn't for the HIV. What they actually found was that in these women, despite the fact um, you know, that they were young and HIV infected, their HOMA IR uh, was nearly double. And HOMA IR is a homeostatic model of uh, insulin resistance. So basically, it's just a measure of how uh, your ratio of fasting glucose to fasting insulin, or how, how your fasting glucose relates to your fasting insulin. And the higher it goes, it just basically means the more insulin you're having to put out to maintain a normal blood sugar. So what they found was is that in these women who otherwise would look healthy, um, their insulin resistance was more than double when they became obese. Additionally, their total cholesterol went up, but I think more importantly, what we're seeing now is that one of the major risk factors for cardiovascular disease, their HDL, um, went down by, I guess that would probably be what about a little over 10%. Uh, LDL wasn't really changed, triglycerides weren't really changed, but again, uh, the heavier they got, the more HSCRP they put out, which is obviously another risk factor in both the HIV positive and HIV negative population. So the third area that's really been looked at carefully uh, is neurocognitive decline. So the charter study is a multi-cohort study looking at uh, neurocognitive decline in mm -hmm. HIV, and some of the sites in charter um, also collected uh, fasting uh, blood samples on their patients. So they went back in the study. What they did was they looked at um, incident diabetes. They looked at a number of other things that are dropped off the bottom of the board. Anyway, that says triglycerides. But um, they looked at a number of other uh, variables, but these were the ones uh, that made it into the final model. And they looked at what are the risk factors for developing, um, uh, developing neurocognitive decline with HIV. And what they found, obviously, is that AIDS is going to be, AIDS dementia complex, um, advanced disease is going to be involved, uh, going to predispose to NCI. But this is a multivariable model. So what I think was most interesting was they actually found that waist circumference um, carried a uh, rather markedly elevated odds um, of 1.3 for development of NCI. And when you put waist circumference into a model alone with BMI, BMI actually became 
predict, uh, excuse me, protective. So what this says to me, and I think it was, you know, what it said to the authors also, was that um, in a model with BMI alone, it was still, the odds ratio was greater than one. So I mean, it predicted development of NCI. What they're saying in this actually is, is that it's not just the BMI alone, it's actually how much visceral fat that they're carrying around. So I think that that's yet another um, piece of data indicating that visceral fat is, is of interest. Does, it, does that sort of suggest that there are two different kinds of overweight people on the HIV population, that if mm -hmm. you had those who did not have a high waist-to-hip ratio and yeah. took them out of there, they would have completely different outcomes than the overweight yeah. people who didn't? That's what, I'm, that's what I'm trying to say, yeah. That's what I'm, what I'm hoping to get at. Um, yeah, visceral fat is definitely emerging as far more important, which also brings up the question, should we, when we do uh, intake vitals, should we be doing waist-to-hip ratios rather than doing BMI measurements? Um, the role of obesity and cardiovascular outcomes is less clear, and this gets exactly at your question. So uh, in a multivariable model that includes um, a number of risk factors for developing, you can't read this is NDL down here, total cholesterol, both of which are red and significant for uh, developing disease. Hypertension, diabetes, and previous cardiovascular event in DAD, um, which DAD is a very large uh, European cohort um, of HIV-infected individuals on antiretroviral therapy. The goal of DAD is to get very uh, detailed outcomes data to look for differences in terms of um, health outcomes on different regimens. What they actually found was is that when you put all this into a model, just having a high BMI is not um, necessarily predictive of how you're going to do, and in fact, you can see that the um, hazard ratio goes down from a 1.7 to 1.3 once you have a model that actually includes all of these comorbidities. So the issue being is, is to me, I, my takeaway is actually um, in our obese HIV patients, we've sort of got the heavy and fit, and we've got the heavy and sick. Um, and so I mean, I think that that points us in the direction of we need to tease out a little bit more carefully which among our obese patients are, are um, you know, destined to have problems with cardiovascular disease and how do we identify them? So I think, um, is it, is there any, everybody heard of the obesity paradox? Uh, there was a recent JAMA article, uh, well, not recent, about 18 months ago, it looked at Medicare data and actually found that overall risk of death went down when BMI at time, when you looked at BMI at time of death. And actually, if you had a BMI of somewhere from around 27 to maybe around 33 to possibly 35, your risk of mortality was actually lower. So it's sort of the idea that um, being a little bit overweight might actually be protective. So we looked at this in HIV patients um, on the grounds that, you know, People oftentimes don't just die like that. I mean, they die in ICUs, they die in under medical care, where maybe they're kept NPO for a while. And um, you know, several studies have shown that if you are overweight or mildly obese and you make it into an ICU, you actually do better because you can actually go, you know, 10 days um, without any food, and uh, you've got greater energy reserves. So we looked at this in our cohort, and what we actually found and I can show you here, is we adjusted for uh, baseline CD4 age, a number of other characteristics, and we looked at the risk of an incident cardiovascular, hepatic, renal, and oncologic um, non-communicable disease diagnosis after starting ART. But what we found was that compared to a BMI of 25, um, if you were under that, you actually had a much higher risk of having one of these comorbidities, um, whereas if you were below that, uh, your risk was lowest at a BMI of 30, and then went up slightly, above that. So this is just uh, shown graphically. I should say that all of our incident diagnoses uh, were one of four NA Accord sites that got supplementary ERA funding 
to do all four of these. And so each one of these charts has been gone through by hand, and all of these diagnoses have been validated. Um, so basically what we found, you can see it kind of displayed here, was actually you probably want to be right about there in terms of your um, risk of developing um, an NCD. These models, uh, so these are BMI's model with restricted cubic splines, and so those numbers that I showed are just point estimates that we pull out of the model. I should say that these models are relatively insensitive to the inclusion of uh, smoking data, alcohol data, statin use, and antihypertensives, but um, as I'll get to in a minute, there's probably a lot of other confounders here we're not considering. This is not totally without um, precedence, though. This is some data from NA Accord that was presented at uh, CROI um, four, four weeks ago, which basically looked at uh, patients' uh, CD4 recovery at 12 months um, based upon baseline BMI. Now, this controls uh, for baseline CD4 count, and we actually used a diff several different strategies to stratify to make sure there was not an interaction effect with uh, baseline CD4. What we actually found was, particularly among women, if you have a BMI of 30, um, you gain considerably more um, CD4 cells after starting antiretroviral therapy than you do if you have a BMI of 25. So we're still not entirely clear what this is from. Um, there's data in the non-HIV literature suggesting actually that circulating leptin levels um, help to modulate uh, peripheral um, CD4 and CD8 cells. So that's one uh, possibility, actually, is that there's some extra burst that comes from higher levels of circulating leptin in these patients. That's something that we're going to hopefully be able to look at in the future. So next I wanted to, in the last 20 minutes, talk about briefly about effects of uh, HIV and obesity on adipose tissue, and then we'll get to strategies. So did anybody have any questions about the comorbidity section? So um, this is data from the non-HIV population. And basically what, uh, I'll try and summarize it quickly. As people, oh, thank you. People read the box. Perfect. <laughs> Um, so as, as, as adipocytes get larger, so as, um, as fat stores get larger, we don't increase the number of fat cells we have. What we do instead is we simply increase the, uh, we don't increase the number of fat cells we have, we increase the size of our fat cells. Now one problem with increasing the size of your fat cells is it's not a linear relationship between the size of your fat cell and the amount of um, inflammatory cytokines and also adipokines that they put out. So it's actually... Uh, more of a nonlinear relationship. So as your cells get larger, they pump out more and more of these circulating cytokines. So I just put interleukin-6 and MCP1 up there as the ones that I thought were most interesting. And you can see uh, the upper quartile at a adipocyte size and the lower quartile. And on the bottom, that's just hours, so how long they sat in cell culture. Um, but these cells begin to put out more and more uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-6. And then MCP1 is macrophage chemotactic protein 1. So that's what recruits macrophages into the fat stores to create mischief. So um, this is a slide. Did everybody read the, the captions at the bottom? So I wanted to go over this quickly. This is a slide that looks at uh, what happens to your fat cells when you take antiretroviral therapy, and then what happens to your fat cells when you take antiretroviral therapy and then become obese. So what we... Um, this is from a review article that we did, and what we uh, summarized from literature basically was that just going on, just having HIV alone already um, affects the adipogenesis of your cells, basically meaning they lose the ability to replicate and they also lose the ability to efficiently incorporate uh, circulating lipids. So just having HIV alone um, 
the effect of the HIV viral proteins on PPAR gamma, which is um, kind of a main regulator of adipocyte health. Just having HIV alone is an insult to your uh, fat cells. The main problem that comes in, though, is antiretroviral agents. So particularly NRTIs, they have a bad habit of interfering with DNA polymerase gamma, which is going to be found in mitochondria. And for some reason, they seem to both—they uh, seem to have a particularly bad effect on uh, fat cells. So what they do, um, as a result of impairing mitochondrial damage, is you get increased. Um, oxidative damage to the mitochondria, which then basically just dysregulates the internal milieu of the fat cells, and you see rapidly increased adipocyte production of IL-6, which is a major pro-inflammatory cytokine, TNF-alpha, another cytokine, um, other cytokine production. You also see increased uh, lipolysis, meaning they like to, uh, they prefer to send lipids out of their cells rather than bring them back in, and reduce incorporation of free fatty acids, and they also downregulate GLUT4. So they downregulate um, glucose uptake. So as a result, your glucose continues to circulate, and that's part of the reason why we think it goes to the visceral tissue and the buffalo hump is because it needs somewhere to, to sit. Now, when patients become heavier um, uh, in obesity, you actually see even more increased production of IL-6 and TNF-alpha as a result of your hypertrophy. You see increased macrophage um, infiltration of the uh, fat tissue, and that probably occurs as a result of MCP1 production that comes with hypertrophy. So then they go in. These guys then get worked up. For some reason, in obesity, they have a predilection to become uh, type M1 macrophages rather than type M2. So they're highly pro-inflammatory. You also see, which I think is really interesting in HIV and nobody's looked at, you see a lot of uh, increased uh, infiltration of CD4 and CD8 cells into fat cell, into fat tissue. Then the question is, why are they there? I don't think that's particularly well understood. All we know is that they go into the fat cells, there's a downregulation of T regulatory cells, and they become activated. So you've got <laughs> activated CD4 and CD8 cells in your fat tissue, which then further activates local macrophages and further, further produces inflammatory cytokines. So all in all, it just doesn't go, doesn't go well. So this is from our cohort, oh, and unfortunately, the, um, they show up on my screen. Oh, I guess they're a little more visible over there. The confidence intervals aren't really showing up. But basically what we looked at was we said, um, you know, we know that these changes happen in fat tissue. Uh, this was just a short study we did on stored samples. What happens to cellular cytokines in patients who are virally suppressed on the same ART regimen of differing BMI? And what we found, actually, is that while HSCRP begins to plateau above a, above a BMI of 30, which probably has to do with the fact you may be outstripping the, the ability of the liver to produce it, the main, main cytokine that drives CRP production, IL-6, really skyrockets up. So we know from the alert cohort that IL-6 is actually a stronger predictor of negative health outcomes than CRP. Um, so it actually seems that the heavier these patients are getting, the more IL-6 they're putting out, maybe having really serious um, effects on them. We also looked at TNF-alpha receptors 1 and 2. We looked at MCP1, which, uh, like I said, you know, recruits macrophages. And then we looked at MIP1-alpha, which has more to do with activated macrophages. So it's sort of a, um, kind of a marker of how activated your macrophages are. So why is this important? Um, this is just some brief data from Todd Hulgan, who has a cohort that he's been working with at Vanderbilt called the LINK cohort, which looks at lipoatrophy and neuropathy. Why is that important is because BMI alone generally doesn't, uh, didn't predict um, a HOMA score in our cohort as it, as it did um, in the study of young women that I showed you, but actually IL-6 uh, is a very strong predictor of HOMA. So we found in real time that the, higher, the higher IL-6 goes, the worse your insulin uh, resistance became. Why is that important? Um, 
Well, because we know that uh, circulating levels at 48 weeks of CRP predict the development of diabetes as the circulating levels of TNF-alpha-1, so it kind of provides something of a mechanistic link. And we also know that circulating levels of both IL-6 and HSCRP predict the um, uh, likelihood of, of having a cardiovascular event. So this was looked at at Harvard in um, the uh, Partners Health System. This is the risk of an MI. So uh, a high CRP in a patient with HIV, their risk of developing a um, MI is fourfold higher. And then in the SMART study, if you've got a IL-6 in the highest quartile um, on ART compared to the lowest quartile, you've got a 4.6-fold increased risk of developing. So in the last, uh, good, we got 15 minutes. In the last 15 minutes, I wanted to talk about some of the strategies to treat disease and how we uh, approach this at Vanderbilt. Does anybody have any questions about the last section? Okay. So um, this is a model which uh, basically just shows how obesity affects a number of different states, the prothrombotic state, the pro-inflammatory state, uh, endothelial dysfunction, uh, liver abnormalities related to both lipid trafficking and also glucose. And I just show this because um, I think if I had started with treated HIV, I could have said the same thing. Um, particularly in terms of uh, prothrombotic, pro-inflammatory, and endothelial dysfunction. So I think one of the things that we've looked most at and that we've tried to drill down with in terms of our um, incidence of comorbidities in our cohort is what's going on with substance abuse in these patients. So are obese patients somehow different uh, in terms of their substance abuse? And I think this is hard to get away from uh, the are there different, you know, what, what does the HIV uh, epidemic really represent? You've got people with certain behavioral risk factors who might be involved in injection drug use, uh, you know, unprotected MSM. And then you also have, particularly among the women, you've got a heterosexual population that was infected, um, you know, by a partner who either didn't know or did and didn't tell them uh, that they were HIV positive. So one issue you run into in looking at substance abuse is you have to consider that obesity may cluster among certain subtype of population in the epidemic. But this was the WISE study, which um, covers, I don't know how many WISE sites there are. I want to say there's seven cohorts, but many of those contain several different uh, cohorts with, within them. Um, but basically what it looked at was um, the number of patients who are current smokers, moderate to heavy alcohol use, which I think was defined as more than two, two to three drinks a day, marijuana use and other illicit drug use. And you can see that as uh, BMI went up, smoking went down, uh, alcohol use went down, marijuana use went down, and uh, most dramatically, uh, other illicit drug use went down. So we're not seeing as much of the injection drug use. And this is our Vanderbilt cohort. And you really see the same thing. So among our normal BMI patients, and these are men and women, 51% of our patients uh, in the normal BMI category smoke, whereas only 30%, 36% of the obese smoke, much less drinking in the obese. Um, marijuana use is only half of that in the obese. And uh, other illicit drug use is low um, in our group. I'm not sure people are really fully reporting all their illicit drug use, but is this similar to what you might see here in terms of substance use at Dartmouth? The other uh, issue that really confounds any of these studies is looking at primary prevention. So how well are we actually getting our patients to the goal that they need to be um, at in terms of primary prevention? 
So there's not nearly as good data in the United States that I've been able to find as there is in Europe. And part of the issue in Europe is you've got centralized health systems with centralized medical records. So it's much easier to be able to pull this data out. So this uh, top, top um, uh, table is from Germany. And what's called the HIV heart study. And what it basically looked at was um, uh, cardiovascular disease risk factors in patients with suppressed viral load on HIV therapy in Germany. And what they found was is that despite um, you know, frequent visits to the clinic, despite providers who were trying to screen for this sort of thing, 39% of their patients still had untreated hypertriglyceridemia. 28% uh, still had a low HDL. And there's not too much you can really do about that besides exercise. But 21% had uncontrolled hypertension. 50% uh, of those with a moderate Framingham uh, cardiovascular disease risk still had high HDL, LDL. Now, that's something you can do something about. Um, in those with a high Framingham risk, 30%, a third, still had high LDL. In those with CHD or a CHD equivalent, less than half were actually on appropriate antiplatelet therapy. And 44% uh, uh, had diabetes mellitus that the provider hadn't, hadn't treated yet. So uh, we don't have anything like that kind of data right now. Um, we're trying to, to get it. But what we do have is we at least have statin use at ART initiation and antihypertensive use at ART initiation. And what we found was that in our cohort, statins are really underutilized. Um, and we also, just from doing um, kind of a quick look at the lab values, we seem to have a lot of patients with poor triglyceride, poor HDL, poor LDL levels. And we also um, did get the sense that there may be something going on though when we looked at uh, antihypertensive use. And that's something that I'm getting at is it's possible that providers look at obese and overweight uh, patients differently, and they may, in some sense, uh, be a little bit more aggressive in treating some of these comorbidities, which could explain some of our unusual outcomes than they would in the normal BMI, but I think there's still a long ways to go. So my last four slides, I want to talk about what we do um, for reducing comorbid disease risk in HIV-infected adults. Um, so like I say, we've got over 30% of our cohort uh, are HIV-infected, and some of our patients are very resistant to nutrition counseling or anybody telling them what they need to do. Uh, but nonetheless, we try. So um, right now, our goal BMI for our patients, this is something we push in our nutrition um, and also exercise counseling, is to get below a BMI of 25. And that's on the grounds of the Samara study, which basically shows that even getting below 25 and having treated HIV, you still have um, essentially the same risk factors as an otherwise obese person without HIV. We also use um, waist circumference of 94 for males and um, 80 centimeters for females. More importantly, also, we uh, track weight gain after ART initiation. So we really want to see people gain less than five kilos or less than five centimeters in waist circumference. Um, and we try and get providers to bring up weight loss when necessary. We have an in-house uh, nutritionist um, who sees all of our patients if they're referred. And uh, the recommendations are to aim for less than 25% calories from fat. Um, we reduce snacks and high sugar juices. And we also increase soluble fiber intake to try and pull lipids out of the, uh, prevent lipids from being absorbed. Are there any nutritionists here today? What do you, what, uh, is this similar to what you would counsel yeah. for your patients? Okay. So, and then also, uh, we've gotten into recommending the Fitbit, which is expensive for a lot of our patients, but we try and ask them to get 10,000 steps a day. So we do diabetes screening every year. Uh, the patients who are most at risk, as I showed before, uh, really the overweight and the obese. It's a two-fold two increased risk and a three- to four-fold increased risk. We're not doing waist-hip ratio. That's something I've been hoping we might be able to add to the intake vitals. We've gotten very far with that. 
Um, and then we also look for metabolic syndrome. So we don't have any uh, organized way of identifying those patients, but studies have shown anywhere from a five to nine-fold risk of progression to overt diabetes in patients who come in um, at any time with, with findings of central obesity, hypertension, dyslipidemia. And then also, um, as patients are on ART longer, our, our um, uh, suspicion for diabetes goes up, since that's also been shown to be a risk factor. And it's hard to say about, you can definitely say that stabidine causes diabetes, but luckily we don't put people on stabidine anymore. Um, Didanosine does the same thing. And Dinovir has also been shown in DAD to lead to diabetes. Whether or not the newer PIs do, I think, is still an open open question. There was some back and forth at Croy two years ago about whether or not statin use in HIV predisposed to diabetes. I think that's still an open question also. Elevated serum CRP, again, not much you can do about that. There is some evidence that exercise will, will reduce CRP. Uh, but the main thing that we're most looking for is diabetes dyslipidemia. So that's basically um, triglycerides that are up and LDL that's down. So if you see that pattern, well, when we see that pattern in our patients, we get very suspicious that they're on their way to diabetes. The uh, anti-diabetic agents, um, this is from a review also by Catherine um, Samaras, and it was based on um, another recent review by Daniel Dubé, I think. Uh, who looks at uh, basically just what are the interactions that you worry about. So obviously, nobody uses DAVID, but you probably know about the metformin and tenofovir, so we do keep an eye out for lactic acidosis in our patients who are started on metformin. We don't consider, we don't look for any kind of um, interactions between sulfonylureas and insulin. And then the um, DPP-4 inhibitors like acidic liptin, I don't know how much of that you use, but uh, DPP-4 enzyme is also involved in cellular communication among lymphocytes um, and also cell regulation. So there's theoretical, theoretical risk of immunodeficiency. There's also a theor theoretical risk of cytokine overexpression when you inhibit DPP-4. So there's some question as to whether or not that's a good idea. We're also we're doing a very small BMS-funded clinical trial right now of Bidurion, which is injectable Bieta, which is a GLP-1 inhibitor. Um, there's some data from renal patients showing that if you use that as your anti-diabetic drug, you might actually have an anti-inflammatory prop property. The reason why it is is it's thought to possibly affect uh, PPAR gamma um, and sort of stabilize adipose tissue. So we're looking at that in a, very, in a handful of patients right now in 16 weeks. We're getting 16 weeks of bidurion to see what happens to their inflammation. Lastly, everybody stays away from thiazolidinodiones, but there's some mouse data actually <coughs> indicating that uh, they may be good um, in, in patients with adipose tissue dysfunction because they actually allow branched-chain amino acids, which there's a recent Framingham study showing that branched-chain amino acids were a major risk factor for developing diabetes, or I should say serum levels of branched-chain amino acids predicted diabetes up to 10 years out in Framingham. And actually, for some reason, um, thiazolidinodiones seem to improve incorporation of BCAA into adipocytes. So that might be part of where the field is going. Fortunately, uh, people have heart attacks on them, though, so that's why it might not be such a good thing. Um, for hyperlipidemia screening, we perform that fasting lipids at least uh, yearly. Uh, sometimes it's hard to get people to come back for fasting labs, but we really push that. Uh, in obese patients, we'll sometimes try and avoid a uh, PI-based uh, regimen simply because we're a little bit worried about the effects on dyslipidemia. And then any patients with um, uh, overweight, any overweight and obese patients with dyslipidemia, in addition to getting on statin, we refer for nutrition exercise counseling. It's very hard to bring up HDL without some exercise, um, and that's one of the things that we really want to see happen. Um, 
I just, everybody knows about the statins and the protease inhibitors. It's all drug-drug specific, so it has to be looked up individually. I think sometimes this is not as well known, the atorvastatin and pravastatin interactions with efavirenz. You may not be getting the lipid-lowering effects that you think. Uh, a lot of the other ones are generally safe for bringing down lipids, so nothing really works as well as a statin. The only thing I think that we also watched out for are bile acid binding regimens, or resins, on the grounds that um, sometimes you can bind up things you don't want to bind up, for example, your ART regimen. So we try and space those out at least four hours um, after the ART has been taken, and we only use them in patients who take once daily regimens because we want to see it all absorbed. So the summary points um, for those basically are that in our cohort, and I hope I would imagine here also, but I think across the United States, the number of overweight and obese HIV-affected patients is going up, 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 and they're uh, reaching parity with the general population. Just having HIV, you can be young, healthy, working out, but nonetheless, a lot of your inflammatory and um, metabolic parameters will be closer to those people who are obese and don't like getting exercise. Uh, the major, uh, the state of the field right now is that obesity uh, compounds the HIV-associated risk of diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and neurocognitive decline. We need a lot more work to understand CVD, CBD risk, but it's all being, um, I think, confounded by differences in behavior and also possibly differences in how providers treat these patients. Central obesity, I hope I got across, was uh, far worse than peripheral uh, limb fat mass. And uh, adipose tissue seems to be driving much of this. So could therapies like diazolidinodiones, like bidurion, a GLP-1 inhibitor, actually improve clinical outcomes via the adipose tissue? Um, there may be a mild uh, obesity paradox. Um, differences in smoking, alcohol, and drug use, I really think, need to be uh, addressed in these patients to understand what are they doing right that perhaps thinner patients or other patients are not doing well. Um, more has to be done to get CBD risk factors at goal, both at Vanderbilt and also elsewhere. And then um, lastly, uh, aggressive nutrition, exercise counseling, tobacco avoidance, and prevention of additional uh, weight gain is really critical. So that's that. <laughs> Sorry, I think I went a minute or two over. Does anybody have any questions? I wonder if you talked about um, this issue of, of you know fit obesity versus sick obesity. Sure. The note that you just heard indicates a cold red within the complex. Flashing stroke oh. indicates a alarm. So, your area. not your so further instruction. One of the things I was wondering about this is there are so many yes. different potentially contaminating variables. And there are two variables that I didn't hear you mention, but I'm sure you thought of, and I'm curious if you sort of talk a little bit more about them. What is historical use of stabbing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so actually there was a talk at Croy about historical use of stabudine on uh, adipose tissue health. And actually, if you are ever exposed to D4T um, and DDI, you have what appears to be lasting um, impairment um, in, adipose, in adipocytes. And so actually that's something that we want to look at now is um, trying to understand how patients with similar risk profiles but were previously exposed to older generation NRTIs do. It seems that, um, you know, the oxidative, so stabudine, 
and uh, DDI really do a job on DNA polymerase gamma, and they um, cause a lot of oxidative damage in the mitochondria, and some of that doesn't repair itself. I think what probably is happening in those patients based on biopsy is actually it's fibrosis of the adipose tissue. So if you look at patients with severe lipo lipoatrophy and you biopsy it, you actually find a uh, large um, or a much higher proportion of uh, fibrotic tissue holding the adipocytes together, which not only cuts down on cell signaling, but also um, prevents, for example, enlargement of the adipocytes, um, just leads to kind of a more um, an impaired ability to incorporate fat. So yeah, prior exposure to those um, is, has been shown to not be a good thing. And then yeah, I think separating out the healthy, uh, you know, the healthy uh, overweight or the healthy obese from the unhealthy obese. My feeling is that it has to be based on, on metabolic parameters. I mean, you can't just look at somebody. Um, I mean, there are certainly people who have the spider, the spider physique, uh, you know, with the giant bellies and the wasted uh, periphery, and chances are they're going to have some problems. But um, in people who are obese, it can sometimes be difficult to tell how much of that subcutaneous and how much of that is visceral obesity. And in those situations, I think you want to look at triglycerides, HDL, and you want to look at HOMA. You know, there's no value to a fasting glucose. There is, you know, there's perhaps some value to looking at a hemoglobin A1C in someone who you really think is diabetes, or has diabetes. But fasting glucose, you need to look at it on more than one occasion. And without an insulin measurement, it's very hard to tell how... Um, how far their pancreas is operating at the edge of its margin to keep it, keep them in, in good health. And that's where they really give out, is that they develop a combination, um, you know, pancreatic failure eventually, in addition to, to, to muscle insulin resistance. Any other questions? We have a lot of difficulty just getting these patients to come in and have fasting glucitron and fasting blood sugar tron. We default a lot of times using non-fasting studies, and can you explain, you know, strategies that you guys have found that might help? Yeah. What, because it's really, that's where one of the big problems is with our, it's lack of, lack of fasting data on everybody. Yeah, well, we... We have, I thought I did that. We have, um, we have a lot of satellite clinics, and so we got a lot of people who come from far distances away to get HIV care, but Vanderbilt's got a lot of walk-in clinics as part of its health network. So you can go there and get your labs first thing in the morning. Um, we have some people to like Quest and LabCorp if they don't want to drive another 50 miles or whatever they had to drive to get to us to get their labs done. Uh, we'll book people at early you know, morning appointments. Um, yeah, I mean, that's hard. So, you know, you can use a non-fasting LDL. Uh, I guess you could use a non-fasting HDL, but you can't use a non-fasting triglycerides. So, um, yeah, you're kind of stuck. And then for diabetes screening, you use hemoglobin A1C, but not without an eight-hour fast, glucose and insulin are not going to be reliable. So, yeah, you basically have hemoglobin A1C, HDL, and LDL, but it gives you some indication. But again, I mean, the big issue, though, is... Um, is their insulin production beginning to outstrip their ability to maintain their glucose? And that's when the failure point occurs, not, um, not when their glucose just happened, you know, it's still 99. So. Along those same lines, you talk about uh, treating your, your trigger for using metformin in that type of patient who's, you know, not, doesn't meet classic criteria for... Yeah, um, we've talked about that before. Um, we don't, so we wait until somebody uh, actually has um, sort of overt diabetes before we'll start them on metformin. Um, and it's still our first-line regimen. We got an FDA waiver to use bidurion as a first-line regimen prior to metformin, and we're looking at that right now uh, to see what its effects might be. Um, but yeah, given some of the potential risks with metformin, which um, you know are relatively rare, but nonetheless are still there, I think... Uh, um, 
Yeah, we don't. We would never. We don't. We don't start it before somebody becomes diabetic. So you know, I mean, you know, patients um, having diabetes is kind of a big deal. I mean, you know, it's almost like a lot of our patients are more concerned about their diabetes than their their HIV. Because you know, they feel that HIV, if you stay on your antiretroviral therapies, you're going to be fine for you know decades. But they read about loss of vision, they read about you know loss of limbs, things like that with diabetes, and they really um, worry a lot about it. So yeah, we unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, we don't start until they become overtly diabetic. Great, well, thank you. Thank you.